Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. A little stressful this morning, my internet went down. Oh my God, right? When everything's going to virtual and online, that's probably the worst case scenario for right now, but it is now back up obviously. So i um, got a big, big question from my friend Charlie Reed um, that will probably require discussion beyond this little interaction here because it's a big it's a big question for a lot of people. Uh, but I think I think I can address it at least briefly in, in this scenario to, to make it useful. Um, but it's, it's a long question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. So bear with me. So Charlie says, I've been following your videos lately and figured I'd ask a question regarding how systemic factors play into your treatment and training approach and how you might address these in dialogue with those that, that come to see you for help. For example, you may find some limitations in movement capabilities, either in a movement assessment or a table test, but you notice from their history that they're a smoker, they have poor markers of aerobic fitness, high BMI, or have reported high levels of stress at work. Although I'm sure assigning some movement-based interventions may be helpful, how might you address these overarching factors as part of your treatment and training paradigm? This question is motivated by observing some trainers and therapists doing what they feel most confident or competent in and not always addressing issues uh, that may need to be addressed first or concurrently. Thank you for considering it should you choose to answer it. I hope this question is even more useful to your followers than it is to myself. So thank you, Charlie. This is an awesome and a, and a monstrous question, but, but let, me, let me do my best here in a short period of time. Let's look at this from, from two perspectives. So let's look at the coach therapist perspective first and then we'll look at the client. So um, we all have our circle of competence where we are effective, confident, and useful. And, and I don't think that it's necessary that we, we try to, to go beyond that um, because I, when I think it increases the, the risk of, of failure and you can also potentially put, put a client at risk as well as, as your reputation, which we have to have some measure of to be successful as a professional. The way, the thing that we need to understand is that we also don't want to be satisfied with the current circle of competence. So the way we, that we start to work within this this level of complexity, is is through our mentorship and apprenticeship models, and that's a safe place for younger trainers to be exposed to this level of complexity. So, for instance, I've been doing this for 30 years, and so when I'm faced with something like this, I think I'm a little bit more more competent and a little bit more comfortable in working with this level of complexity, where somebody with only 30 days of experience may not. And, and so again, I think that we stay, we stay in our wheelhouse as to where we feel most effective and, or where we've demonstrated our effectiveness. And so again, when we talk about, about um, competence, let's, let's try to stay within that. Um, just don't be satisfied and keep working to expand your knowledge, your understanding, and then your, your competence will obviously grow. So now let's look at this from, from the client perspective. I think most clients probably recognize to a certain degree, based on the information available, that, that their behaviors are not necessarily ideal, but what they're having trouble with is the behavioral change that's associated with that. Because I don't think there's a smoker alive that doesn't know that they've increased their risk of cancer by, by smoking. So again, information is not the decision-making factor here. What is the decision-making factor is, is um, their, their beliefs and their, their emotions. So people will make decisions based on those beliefs and emotions, and then they will superimpose the logic or information on top of that that would support that, well, this is why I do this, because I can't or whatever. So their belief system is becomes a limiting factor. So how do we alter those? 
those beliefs? Well, number one, if we can integrate them into our culture. So, so we look at our behaviors and, and you know, we're, we're, we're fit, we exercise, we eat well, and we didn't make those changes all in a day. And so we can't expect our, our clients to do the same. And so, so we integrate them into our culture uh, with our, our gym culture or, or the environment to provide them with the social proof that yes, this is possible. So, so now we're starting to impact some beliefs in that because they see other people you know, that, that we associate them with. And so people become like the people that they associate with. And so that's, that's a very important part of this whole process is, is to provide them with the social proof. So it's not just showing people testimonials and things, it's literally integrating them into the culture so they start to associate. Um, secondly, if we, if we wanna look at behavioral change, people only have so much energy and so many resources to contribute towards a change in behavior because it is uncomfortable, it does take energy. And, and so what we wanna look at is, is where can we make the smallest change with the least amount of effort. So they, one, they start to recognize that they can change and so they can alter their, their identity. So so one of the easiest ways for, for say a smoker to quit smoking is to recognize the fact that I am no longer a smoker, I am a non-smoker. So how does a non-smoker believe? Well, non-smokers don't buy cigarettes. They don't carry a lighter. Um, they don't associate with other smokers, etc., etc. And so. And that's an extreme example. But what we want to start to look at is, okay, so what's the smallest change that you can make that 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 um, takes the least amount of effort, which might be, hey, just show up to the gym twice a week. All I need you to do is get here, right? Start with that. Just show up. Um, maybe just put on your workout clothes at home and change into those, right? Maybe that's the smallest adjustment that, that you make. And again, that, that's sort of like an extreme example, but that is also a potential reality. It's like, what is the least that you could do um, that is different and doesn't take much effort and is not painful and, and allows you to recognize that, that change is possible? Um, we, can, we can go as far as asking people certain questions. It's like, you know, what would happen to you if you did make this favorable change? How do you perceive your life to be? And then they start to recognize themselves that, hey, if I make this favorable change, then I'm more likely to be happy, healthy, and, and successful. Um, we can also reverse gears and we can ask a much more painful question is, so if you decide not to make this change, how do you foresee your life to, to move forward? And again, it's a little bit more painful, but it does provide them a recognition of of how their beliefs and, and their behaviors do influence an, an outcome. So I think we, we, we try to integrate them into a process. Everybody wants to, to create this lofty goal or this, these extreme behaviors or make these massive changes. And I think we have to do this incrementally. And so we look say, where can I make the impact first and foremost on any level? The simplest change to allow them to recognize and, and change the beliefs that are actually limiting them and promoting the behaviors that are interfering with their, with their progress. So I hope this initiates at least an, an element of, of this. I think it's a fabulous question. I think it's one of the biggest issues that we deal with. It's, it's beyond programming. It's beyond the execution of, of the, the interaction in the gym. This is, this is actually probably the, the biggest issue for, for everyone that's trying to make a, a favorable change in their behavior. So Charlie, I appreciate you asking it. I hope there's questions that come off of this because it, it is it is the, the elephant in the room, so to speak. It's one of the biggest issues that we deal with. So I hope this gets it started. Um, work to, 
in, increase your circle of competence um, for those of you out there who are coaches and trainers. And then again, looking for small victories and, and a change in beliefs. We have to reach people on an emotional level versus you know, pummeling them with information because it's not the information that's going to make the impact. Have a great Wednesday. Enjoy your neural coffee as I will mine. And we'll see you later. Good morning. Happy Thursday. Or as we call it here, chips and salsa day, because this is the typical day where we have our little iFast family dinner at my favorite Mexican restaurant, um, which is currently closed. So we're gonna figure something out. Um, for those of you that, that live in my area, if you have any ideas as to where I can get some really good Mexican carryout, I would really appreciate it because I've been going to the same restaurant for eight years and I, I really don't like to change, but looks like I'm gonna have to do it. So so let me know on that if you, if you guys like to know me, know where I live kind of a thing. Um, I have my Neuro Coffee in hand as usual and It is perfect. Um, I got a question from, from uh, Vikram. And Vikram had a question about the squat video that I posted about six days ago. I believe it was March 19th, where we were talking about the, the, the transition from, from inhalation to exhalation to inhalation during the, the heels elevated squat pattern to uh, reduce the, the anterior posterior compressive strategy. And so he had some really good questions about this and I'm sure everybody has a, a similar question. So, so I thought I would go through these because um, he, he broke it down into three pieces for me here. He says, number one, is the reason for pushing through the medial heel on the ascent to, to promote pronation exhalation strategy? Absolutely. So remember when you're at the bottom of the squat, now I'm gonna grab my pelvis here so we can sort of simulate this. So when you're at the bottom of the squat, we are actually in a position of inhalation and ER. So we've got counternutation of the, of the sacrum, we've got ER of the ilium, we have a descent of the, of the pelvic diaphragm because we are in this, this early propulsive position, therefore it is, it is biased towards inhalation. So we need to exhale to push the pelvic diaphragm upward as we push through the sticking point to get above the sticking point. Um, so yes, we definitely want to push on the medial heel and exhale at the same time. And that actually helps us restore a normal exhalation strategy without compensatory strategies being superimposed. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, during the ascent, would there be any benefit to reversing the exact sequence as in the, the descent of the squat? So, so what he's referring to here, so remember we're biasing ourselves towards inhalation at the, at the, the top of the squat, we exhale, uh, to the sticking point and then we inhale again to, to full descent and what we're trying to do there with that sequence is to again restore a normal inhalation to exhalation um, behavior without the compensatory strategies so we go from inhalation exhalation to the sticking point which is normal and then to inhalation again to get to the full descent as we reverse gears and push up it is unnecessary to reverse the, the, the sequence because it's going to happen naturally. We're starting from a bias of inhalation. We push through the sticking point, which is our which are our, our concentric pelvic diaphragm. So the pelvic diaphragm is descended at the bottom. 
We exhale through the sticking point, it pushes up, and then you're just gonna take a normal inhale at the top and, and, and reestablish your anterior posterior expansion at that point. So it is unnecessary to intentionally reproduce the same strategy that we use on the descent. But that's a really good question. Finally, he says, uh, what superficial compression strategy would be reinforcing by taking the breath that you took at the top and held it through the middle propulsive phase? Doesn't really matter. Point being is, is that you will use a superficial compression strategy and chances are you will use everything that's available to you under those circumstances to some degree because all the superficial compressive strategies are superimposed at the same time just to varying degrees. So the whole point of performing the heels elevated squat in the sequence as I demonstrate on the March 19th video. So the whole premise behind that is one, is to reduce the superficial compressive strategies that happen in, from an anterior posterior aspect, okay? So we're biasing ourselves towards the ability to, to inhale without compensation, exhale without compensatory strategy, and then to re-inhale in the, in the depth of the squat, and then restore the normal pattern on the, on the ascent as well. So this is a really good question, Vikram. I'm glad you asked it. I'm sure you've helped someone else today by, by asking this question. Have a fabulous Thursday. I am gonna find some Mexican, Mexican carry out no matter what it takes today. I'm gonna to enjoy the rest of my neurocoffee this morning and I'll see you guys later. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neurocoffee in hand and I have been killing it this week. This is perfect. All right, I got a question from Josh. And Josh made some reference to a, an Instagram video uh, that I had posted. We were talking about, about flywheel training. And so Josh, Josh asks, on the Instagram Live, you mentioned flywheel training having, a potential, having the potential to help certain people and not others. Can you be more specific about why someone would use or avoid exercises on a flywheel? So this just goes toward uh, looking at any uh, training tool or modality um, as just being broad scope application and it's okay for everybody because it's hard work. When the reality is, I think we can be very, very specific if we understand who it is that we're working with and what their actual capabilities are. And so rather than just blindly applying certain methods or blindly programming and just, like, once again, just relying on, on hard work trying to be the, the solution to a problem, we can be very, very specific. So essentially what we're talking about with flywheel training is this, this ability to overload the, the eccentric element. So we can, we can turn this into a broad scope discussion of just eccentric overload methods. So we could say, oh, maybe you're using weight releasers to, to emphasize the, the eccentric element and we'll get a similar, similar effect here. But what we want to consider is, do we want to amplify the current strategy that our, our patient, client, or athlete is using, or do we want to dampen that strategy and try to recapture some element of adaptability that they don't have? And so that's the first thing that we have to decide based on what they're presenting with. So let me give you a for instance, let me grab my pelvis real quick. So if I have somebody that is 
is concentrically oriented in the in the pelvic diaphragm. So somebody that is reliant on high force outputs. And so they've trained themselves to, to maintain some measure of concentric orientation in the pelvic diaphragm. So they would have the, the nutated sacrum. They're, they emphasize exhalation strategies. And again, they're, they're just somebody that produces high force. So a uh, power lifter, an offensive lineman, somebody that has to spend a, a lot of time producing prolonged efforts at, at high force output. So what we could do is we could say, well, I wanna, I wanna continue to emphasize this. I wanna magnify it to the nth degree. And so I'm gonna use my, my flywheel strategy. So I'm gonna use a very, very heavy resistance. So a very, very strong eccentric load. And I'm gonna have them try to resist that because I wanna magnify the exhalation strategy. I wanna magnify the concentric orientation. I do not want dissension of that diaphragm under any circumstances because in the situation of a power lifter squatting a very, very heavy load, the minute that they become too eccentrically oriented, they accelerate towards the earth, which is what they don't wanna do. And so they wanna to continue to try to produce as much force output throughout. And so once again, so this will train them to, to magnify the current strategy, which actually may enhance performance. However, if my goal is to um, make someone more explosive, have them move quickly, then these circumstances may not be of, of benefit. Uh, because again, to, to move quickly, I have to move uh, into an eccentric orientation to a concentric orientation very quickly. If the strategy does not allow them to capture the eccentric orientation to begin with, then while they can still produce high levels of force, they can't do so within a time constraint. So again, they can't be quick, they can't be explosive. And so under those circumstances, this eccentric overload strategy really isn't a, a benefit. Now, let's say that I have, um, uh, I'll pick on female volleyball players. Um, let's just say I have a female volleyball player. She presents with a narrow infrasternal angle and she's eccentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. And we're trying to teach her to, to elevate. We're trying to teach her to get, get off the ground. And so what she has difficulty with is actually capturing this concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm to allow her to, to produce upward force. And so in this case, then we can again uh, apply this flywheel strategy where we're gonna increase this eccentric overload because what it's gonna do, it's gonna force her to capture this concentric orientation sooner in her descent. And so under these circumstances, maybe we can actually teach her to capture this position more effectively. And then our next strategy would be is if she can capture this, this concentric strategy, then we can teach her to do it quickly. So what we'll end up doing is we'll put her on high resistance eccentric overload to capture this capability. And then we'll put her on a, a more reduced eccentric overload to teach her how to do this quickly. And so she can actually get off the ground. And so then we do teach explosiveness. But so, so in, in one circumstance, um, we don't wanna release the strategy. In the other circumstance, we're trying to capture um, that strategy. And so again, it just depends on what type of an athlete that we're presenting with as to when we would use this. If I am trying to take someone that, that, that is trying to be more explosive, they are very concentrically oriented, they use a very strong exhalation strategy, I do not want to emphasize this, this high, high force eccentric overload strategy. 
And so if I wanted to use the flywheel, I probably still could, but I'm gonna to have to use it on very, very light resistance, and I'm going to have to emphasize velocity in their performance. So again, it's just a matter of, of knowing when to use a certain tool, how to implement it into programming, based on the individual in question and based on the context at which we're trying to apply it. So again, there's certain times where it's gonna be, be more beneficial. There's certain times where it's going to be detrimental to performance. So again, if I'm trying to make somebody fast and explosive and I'm using a very strong eccentric overload, probably a bad strategy because all I'm doing is amplifying the current strategy and I won't see the changes. That, that I'm looking for. So Josh, I hope that that gives you a little bit of direction as to what we were talking about with, with, the, uh, with the flywheel strategies or just plain old eccentric emphasis uh, overload training. If you have any other questions, please let me know. I hope you guys have an outstanding Friday. I'm gonna go finish my neural coffee and then I'm gonna go grab a workout and it's gonna be a great weekend. So if you have any other questions, make sure you post them on Instagram and I'll see you guys. So I got a question from Drew and Drew says, I've been thinking about your shoulder flexion video and your comments about how it's common for individuals to use internal rotation to finish shoulder flexion. To improve shoulder flexion without this compensation, what are your thoughts on landminer Viking pressing? And so he brings up a couple of variations also on, on that theme of, of using a Viking or a landmine press. And Drew, what I would say is the thing that we wanna want to be sure of is that we have an understanding of why we actually have this limitation in shoulder flexion in the first place, and that's going to help us determine what strategies we're going to use to help restore it. So let me turn Alfred around so we can actually see what the limitation is on this overhead reach. So when we get a compressive strategy on the posterior aspect of the thorax, the higher up the posterior compression, the greater the limitation in overhead reach. So many people will actually be limited below the level of the scapula, and they're not gonna be able to perform any form of pressing without a compensatory strategy above shoulder level. As we get up into the upper thorax, this is where we're really looking at the overhead had reached limitations. So if we were to use, say, a Viking press or a landmine press in an attempt to restore the ability to reach overhead without a compensatory strategy that would represent a full external rotation of the shoulder overhead, one of the limitations of this exercise is the amount of load that we're going to use. If I was to use an excessive load that would require me to perform an exhalation strategy to complete the press, I'm defeating my purpose of trying to get my arm overhead without compensation. An increased load demands that I use an exhalation strategy to complete the activity. That's going to cause compression in the upper thorax and immediately limit my capacity to externally rotate the shoulder with my arm in an overhead position. That doesn't mean that I can't use these activities to enhance my ability to shift airflow from side to side. If I perform these activities in a unilateral manner, with the appropriate loads, I can actually improve my capacity to reach overhead. So Drew, let's head out into the gym and we'll go over a couple of nuances using the landmine press to show you what I mean. So Drew, here's an example of how we would use landmine pressing to help maintain or gain left shoulder flexion. 
So I'm set up in left half kneeling here. And what I'm gonna do is create a propulsive strategy on the right side by pushing the right hip ahead of the left. In doing so, I create a posterior compressive strategy on the right, which will allow my left posterior to expand. It's the expansion in the dorsal rostral area that allows me to maintain or recapture overhead reach on the left side. As I press upward, I'm going to maintain my posterior expansion by reaching forward, but not allowing my thorax to drift forward. If I was to reach forward and turn into the press, I would create a posterior compressive strategy on the left side, which would defeat the purpose of creating the expansion for overhead reach. Since my goal is to emphasize left shoulder flexion, as I'm pressing with the right arm, I can create a posterior compressive strategy on the right that will also help me maintain my expansion on the left. So what I'm gonna do here on my setup is shift my left hip posteriorly, which again turns my pelvis to the left. This helps me emphasize the posterior expansion as I press on the right side. As I press on the right, I'm gonna create the posterior compression, the propulsive strategy on the right side, which will help me maintain left side expansion. So Drew, it's not one particular exercise that's so important. What's important is that you respect the goal. If the goal is to maintain or improve shoulder flexion, then any activity of choice has to maintain the posterior expansion in the dorsal rostral thorax. So don't forget to take load into consideration. If my goal is to increase force production, I am always going to superimpose an exhalation strategy as this is required for high force. Just remember that this higher force production is going to require the exhalation strategy that may compromise your ability to reach overhead. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand. Mm -mm -mm. It is perfect, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, Q&A for this morning. Very, very squat heavy. Ooh, not heavy squats, but squat heavy. Um, got two questions that came through in regard to some, some squatting uh, methods and they wanted to clarify a few things in regards to some muscle activity and some execution of technique that would emphasize different goals. So I thought I would put them in the Q&A together. So, first one comes from Zhang. Zhang, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. So Zhang asks, um, what are the actions of the musculature above the level of trochanter, such as upper glute max and piriformis at the bottom of a deep squat when the hips are flexed above 120 degrees? Do these muscles still contribute to the internal rotation of the femurs in a deep squat or do they change the line of pull and become external rotators again? Okay, so this is a really good question. Let me grab the pelvis. Because it seems like, well, if they change from here to here, surely they change when we get when we get into the, the deeper element of the squat. The thing you have to understand about the, the deeper part of the squat is that we are reliant on the movement of the ilia relative to the sacrum in that deep squat. So we're looking at that type of a motion at the deepest portion of the squat which means that I need to create a yielding strategy with this, this glute max in pure formus in this deeper portion, deeper portion of the squat. And so to, we have to understand that at, at their distal attachment on the femur, because of the orientation of the pelvis relative to the femur, they're still going to be maintaining some internal rotation moment, 
right? So what you'll see, especially in Olympic weightlifters in the deepest part of say a, a, a snatch, is you'll actually be able to see this femoral internal rotation in the deepest part of the squat. The reason that they have to maintain some IR in the deepest portion of the squat is because they have to maintain an element of a concentric orientation in the pelvic diaphragm, otherwise they bottom out and then they can't reverse gears and come up out of the deep squat. But to get to the deep squat and to get the, the, the amount of, of uh, hip motion, I have to have this relative motion here. So yes, these mus the musculature above the trochanter is maintaining its internal rotation capabilities, but it will yield here posteriorly. So that's a really, really good question um, from, from Zhang, and I hope that that clarifies it. Now, Eddie from Germany, thanks for uh, staying in touch, bud. So Edward from Germany um, had a a clarification question on some of the heels elevated variations of the deep squat that we've been talking about. And so, so he asked, I, I was thinking about the lower portion of the squat, um, how we would have a more counter position, both ilia ER and a posterior outlet closure. How would the ball between the knees worker make sense? How about having a band around the knees and, and a ball between the knees simultaneously in squatting? Then we would start the inhalation of the top position and, and then exhaling to IR, squeezing the ball at about 90 degrees of reflection, then inhaling again um, against the, the band for, for the ER to sit down into the deep squat. Now, theoretically, that sounds great. However, when we're doing the heels elevated squat variations, our goal is to bias ourselves towards the inhalation. That's typically why we're doing it. It's not that you couldn't put the ball between the knees and try to reinforce the exhalation strategy through that mid-range, but the only goal with, with our, our deep squat with the band around the knees is to create a non-compensatory exhalation under those circumstances. So again, it's like, what is our intent with the exercise? So putting the ball between the knees and a band around the knees just increases the complexity of the activity and it may be totally unnecessary. Now, if your goal was to increase concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm through that middle range of the squat, there are definitely better solutions than using a heels elevated version, which is biased towards the inhalation. So what I would do then under those circumstances would probably use some sort of box squat variation that would create the constraint of stopping the squat at a certain point so I don't get too much eccentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm. I can use a much stronger exhalation strategy and create that upward movement off the box with the impulse of a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. So, so I like the way you're thinking on that. I just don't think you need to add that kind of a complexity to the squat pattern. I, I think there's enough things that we, that we try to think about and we tend to create a lot of complexity in a lot of these exercises anyway. But like I said, I do appreciate your thinking. That's all I have for this morning. Um, I'm actually gonna be shooting probably some squat videos this week, um, so stay tuned for those. Those will be up, um, probably up on the YouTubes at some point this week. And then if you have any questions, um, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we'll answer those as we go through the week. Have a great week. I'm gonna go kill off this Neuro Coffee because it's delicious this morning. It's awesome, and I will see you guys later. So let's talk more specifically about the box squat. 
Um, a lot of the information on the box squat comes from the powerlifting community and it's actually very, very useful. But what I want to do is look at it from a little bit different perspective. We're going to look at it more from the inside out in regard to how we actually use the guts to our advantage, how we can be disadvantaged by them if we don't learn how to control them, and then how the pelvic diaphragm actually influences your ability to perform the squat. So one of the things we have to recognize is that we can use this in a number of situations from rehabilitation to performance. It's this versatility that makes me a huge fan of the box squat. But I think that if you start to see some of the representations as to how we're able to manipulate the variables of the box squat, you'll see its utility. So let's do a quickie review of how the pelvis behaves during a squat. So as I start with this, with this hip at a relative zero degrees of hip flexion or hip extension, depending on how you look at it, I'm gonna say that the pelvis is in a relatively inhaled position. So as I'm descending in the squat and I pass through this 90 degree range, this is gonna be where I achieve a concentric pelvic diaphragm. So I'm moving from, from an inhalation to an exhalation. And then as I, as I increase the depth of the squat, I'm gonna move back towards a more inhaled position, relatively speaking, inside the pelvis. So again, I'm gonna get diaphragm descension. So basically what I'm looking at from, from parallel to, to the deep squat is I'm looking at the, the pelvic diaphragm descension as a representation of how much hip range of motion I have. The advantage of the box is that it creates a constraint. So it's actually going to help me control this descent of the pelvic diaphragm. Because if I limit the descent, I can actually learn how to reduce the descent of the pelvic diaphragm so I can actually reduce its eccentric orientation. It's this concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm that allows me to be strong and explosive. But I can also manipulate the pelvic diaphragm in situations where I may have too much concentric activity and I need eccentric orientation to allow me to capture ranges of motion. So this is one of the reasons why I truly love the box squat because it is so versatile. So let's look at a number of variations and how we may utilize those in certain situations. So let's get a general representation of the box squat. So we're sitting down to a box and we're using that as a constraint to allow us to manipulate how the pelvic diaphragm is going to behave. So as soon as I sit onto the box, the pelvic diaphragm no longer moves. So if I have too much eccentric orientation, I can reduce that descension. If I have too much concentric orientation, I can actually get that muscle to yield as I sit down to the box if I deload my body weight onto the box. Now one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is the fact that there's also a spring-loaded mechanism internally that's associated with the behavior of the pelvic diaphragm. So if you use a trampoline as a representation, you've got the material of, of the trampoline itself and then you've got the springs that attach to the frame. We can manipulate the stiffness of the material and we can manipulate the stiffness of the springs. And this is why we need a number of variations of the box squat because what we're gonna do is we're gonna manipulate those factors of how the trampoline behaves and how the springs behave relative to one another to solve problems. As I sit down to the box and I deload my body weight onto the box, the trampoline is actually going to resist that force. The springs are going to absorb that force, absorb that energy, and that's what's gonna allow me to propel myself upward off the box. Now, depending on how fast I sit down to the box and how fast I get off the box, I can actually manipulate where I emphasize the load and the stress and the adaptation. So if I wanna make the trampoline stiffer, what I need to do is deload my body weight to the box and allow some of the elastic energy to actually dissipate from the spring element. 
then I'm dependent on a concentric orientation and an overcoming action of the pelvic diaphragm to allow me to stand back up. So if I want to emphasize the spring mechanism, which includes the connective tissues and the skeleton itself, I want to shorten the amount of time that I'm spending on the box. So in this case, I may want to use a touch and go, which will create a stronger emphasis on the spring recoil that allows me to go off the box. Now let's consider problem number one. I have an eccentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm and I have difficulty capturing concentric orientation. So one of the representations you'll often see, and we'll see this especially in females, as they jump from a box down to the ground, you'll see the knees move towards one another as they try to slow their descent. This is somebody that has a great deal of difficulty reducing the eccentric orientation, creating an overcoming contraction, and slowing their descent quickly. So in this case, I have someone that has trouble creating the concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm. So we'll start them at the transition with a high box squat. So we set the height a little bit above or a little bit below this transition point where the squat becomes a little bit more difficult for them, but it's still above parallel. So we're just transitioning into that sticking point. So at this transition point in the high box squat, I can stop the descent of that eccentrically orienting pelvic diaphragm. Using a strong exhalation strategy to get off the box helps me emphasize the overcoming element, and then it just becomes a matter of slowly reducing the box height. One of the best ways to make the transition from a higher box to a lower box is to dampen the forces associated with sitting down onto the box. And we can do that with a series of pads that will help dampen those forces. As the athlete becomes more successful in their acceleration off the box, we simply lower the level of padding. This makes it a little bit more challenging. It teaches them to hang onto that concentric orientation and allows them to increase the internal pressure or the exhalation strategy that's going to allow them to propel themselves upwards. One of the things we have to recognize about the box squat is that as we sit down to the box, there's a slight delay in the way that the guts fall towards the pelvic diaphragm. So the body moves downward, the guts actually move up and then come downward. So there's a downward acceleration of the guts. If I'm already too eccentrically oriented and I can't capture that concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm, one of the ways that I can reduce that downward force is to use the reverse band box squat. So by reducing the systemic load with the reverse band tension, I can actually reduce the internal forces associated with the downward acceleration of the guts. This makes it easier for me to capture concentric orientation and the overcoming action of the pelvic diaphragm. This would be like making the material of the trampoline stiffer. If you've ever had an athlete that's been described as having heavy feet or they're having trouble increasing their vertical jump with traditional means and methods, this reverse band tension allows them to learn to manage the internal forces more effectively. So rather than getting pushed into the ground with higher forces, they're actually able to reverse the internal forces and improve their upward propulsive capabilities. So much like adding weight to the bar under normal circumstances, what you're gonna do over time is actually just reduce the amount of band tension. Another unique variation that's useful for those people that are having trouble getting off the ground is the rebound box squat. By hanging the weights from the band resistance, as you propel yourself up off the box, the weights create a delay, much like the guts pressing down on the pelvic diaphragm. This is like loading the springs of the trampoline and allows them to propel themselves up off the box rather quickly. A word to the wise as you set this up, make sure that you dissipate all the swing on the weights before you try to get up off the box. This activity makes a great transition to our final representation, which is the banded box squat. 
Now instead of deloading the internal forces, what we're going to do is we're going to magnify those forces with the downward pull of the band resistance. So we're accelerating the entire system towards the box, which is going to increase the amount of force directly into the pelvic diaphragm. Under these circumstances, I'm increasing the stiffness of the trampoline and the springs. So I'm trying to maximize the force production as I propel myself off the box. While it seems that all of these variations are ideal for athletes, we can also use a similar progression for our rehabilitation clients. Maximum force capabilities may not be needed, but we can still use the same strategies. Please keep in mind that these are not the only variations of the box squat that can be useful. But once you understand the principles of how we're applying this to the internal forces, the versatility of the box squat is only limited by your imagination. If you have any questions about the box squat or any other exercise for that matter, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com or follow up with me on Instagram or in the comments below. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have newer coffee in hand and ladies and gentlemen, It is perfect. I actually, I got a, a message yesterday, a, a video message from Dr. Mike of NeuroCoffee fame, the, the creator, inventor of, of NeuroCoffee. Um, and I got kind of a surprise for some people that are, that are coming up thanks to him. Um, so we'll talk about that later. Um, but anyway, I, I was just pretty excited to hear from him because it's been a while since I, we've actually had a chance to talk. And he's a good friend and um, a brilliant, brilliant human being for actually creating a coffee that's actually good for your brain. So, um, hi to Dr. Mike um, on video. So, I got a couple of questions that I wanted to go through today for, for today's Q&A. Um, both, both kind of interesting in, in different ways. <clears throat> so let me dig right into those. First one comes from Jason. And Jason says, I recently saw a client with a 90 degree ISA that did not move at all. Additionally, he had limited shoulder hip and uh, hip IR and ER, limited shoulder and hip flexion, no, no hip extension and a lordotic posture. Given these measure, measures, I found it difficult to decide whether I should treat him as someone compressed or expanded as these measures seem conflicting. Um, first and foremost, let's clarify something about this 90 degree ISA thingy. Uh, there is no normal. Everybody has their own. They will have the idiosyncratic in infrasternal angle. It's just that some people are really, really biased towards an exhalation uh, axial skeleton with a compensatory inhalation strategy, and some people are more biased towards an inhalation axial skeleton with an exhalation strategy, and therefore that's what makes these, these wides and narrows. And it is a guide to direct you towards a, a strategy of influence to to make the favorable changes in their adaptability. So when you're presented with somebody with a 90 degree ISA, that is not a normal ISA if it does not move. The goal is to create a dynamic ISA. And so I would direct you to my YouTube video um, as to how to measure that. 
so you actually get a, a, a reasonable representation of what the capabilities of the infrastructural angle are and so you can distinguish between the, the wide and the narrow. Now, under these circumstances, you've lost ERs and IRs, Jason, and so you know you've got an anterior and a posterior compression going on here. So there's no relative gradient between inhalation and exhalation. You have a very, very strong compressive strategy on both sides of the joints. Therefore, you've lost motion in both directions. And so what you need to do at this point is you've got to get the infrastructural angle to move. So if you have manual skills that are, that are allowable in this situation, that's where you would want to go first. You want to try to get this thing to move. And so what I would do is I would compress one side and try to expand the other and then vice versa. If you don't have manual skills, what you can do, um, what we, we've done at IFAST is we will take advantage of our glute ham raise pad, so it's the curved pad. And so we will have people assume different positions over top of the pad, which creates a compressive strategy. And then we promote expansion on the other side using breathing. So, so those would be the, the early strategies that I would use because the first thing you've got to do here, Jason, is you've got to get the ISA moving because if I don't have a, a diaphragm, that, that is capable of, of changing its shape as you breathe, it makes it very, very difficult to, to capture anything else. In the remainder of those strategies, you're gonna focus on expansion in the dorsal rostral area. So there's a seated dorsal rostral activity that you'll probably find very, very useful, again, on YouTube. And then you wanna do some form of reciprocal activities where you're pushing or reaching with one side at a time. So any activities like supine arm bars, one arm at a time would, would be a, a useful activity. Anything that's in an offset position will be a useful activity. So anything in a split stance, anything where one arm is moving forward, the other arm is moving back. You wanna to start to think about those types of activities where you're promoting the ability to turn. So you've got to recapture the turns here. But again, everything that you need to be be focused on is is driving expansion. Um, and then in, in, in most cases, um, you're going to want to make sure you get that dorsal rostral because that's what's going to allow you to, re to achieve your flexions. Okay, so your overhead reach and your knee to chest. Um, so hopefully that's helpful for you, Jason. The second uh, question I have is from Matt. And Matt asks, I'm wondering what your thought process would be for recapturing normal conditions for someone with a pelvis that is anteriorly tipped on one side only with a wide ISA presentation. The right ilium seems to be pulled forward by the iliacus and the lower rib cage on the same side looks like, uh, looks to have an oblique that is not pulling the rib cage down fully during exhalation. Okay, so uh, what you actually have here, Matt, is some, somebody that's got a pelvis that's tilted on an oblique axis. So the right side is not necessarily forward as you, as you believe. So let me get the pelvis and I'll show you. So when we talk about an anterior orientation, <clears throat> that'll be representative of movement in this direction. So now I'm gonna show you this from the front, okay? But what you got here, uh, Matt, is you got somebody that's anteriorly oriented, but they're anteriorly oriented on an oblique axis. So it's going this way. And so what it looks like is that this side is actually more forward when the reality is it's just turning to the right. And so again, you're just orienting the pelvis on this oblique axis. Now I'm gonna turn this around so you can actually see this. If you pay attention to the ischial tuberosity, what's gonna happen is you're gonna see that ischial tuberosity move up in that direction there as, as the pelvis tilts forward on this oblique axis. And so what we need to do is we need to utilize exercises that are gonna bring this, this ischial tuberosity 
down in, in the opposing oblique axes. And so let me give you a list of activities that you might want to consider using, okay? So you're going to do a right supine arm bar. You're going to do a mountain climber with the body inclined at a 60 degree angle with the left knee to chest. You want to do right shoulder rolls. You're going to do backwards crawling. Um, you could use a Jefferson variation on a left, left front foot elevated split squat. You could use a, uh, a right leg forward rear foot elevated split squat with the left hand holding a low cable. You could do a high to low cable press in a staggered stance with the left foot back. You could do a right to left um, cable lift, um, which will also help you achieve these same positions. The idea is, is you have to push backwards to the left on an oblique angle. So that's your exercise selection for this, this type of an orientation. Um, because again, what you're looking at is, is this, this tilt on the oblique axis versus a true anterior-posterior axis. So hopefully, Matt, that's helpful for you as well. If you have any questions about any of those exercises, please post them in the, the comments section here or um, after I post this up on YouTube. So everybody have a great Wednesday. I'm gonna go kill off this neural coffee once again. Thanks to Dr. Mike for the big surprise yesterday. And again, I hope some of you um, are gonna enjoy this as much as I do when you find out what it is. Um, again, have a great Wednesday.